very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, Scott shares his views on how UX teams can have the greatest impact within their organizations by creating compelling narratives based on solid research data and getting them in front of the right stakeholders who are prepared to listen. He talks of the curiosity and empathy so crucial to the discipline, whilst also needing to stay comfortable being wrong about what you may think you know at the outset of a project. And of course, we discuss the metaverse, what it is, what it could be, the barriers to entry, and what skills UX teams might need to develop in this new paradigm of Web3. Finally, he plays my three-card challenge to share his favorite UX tool, favorite technique, and a trend he hopes to see in the future. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So my guest this time is Scott Bernfraser, and he's the technical co-founder of Hundo, which is an ed tech uh, startup. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, Scott. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Good stuff. So tell me a little bit about uh, Hundo uh, and your role within it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hundo is our mission is to end really end youth unemployment, um, and we want to do that by um, creating a a learn to learn education platform, which is aimed at Gen Z and Gen A in the future. Um, we'll give them the skills they need to create careers in more broadly technology, but specifically to start with Web three, um, so the emerging kind of Web three area. I think we we see this increasing demand for talent in that area and we see an increasing number of young people coming through who have the right skills or the starts of the right skills but don't actually know how to leverage those skills and create a career for themselves um youth unemployment is on the rise um the young were the the worst hit when the pandemic hit, hit in terms of losing their jobs and losing being made redundant um, being put on furlough uh, but many of those were gamers many of those were building social media accounts they were tiktokers they were already doing a lot of the things that they could do to actually start to create a career in tech um, and at the same time they were losing their roles the number of tech roles that were available were increasing and they were hard to hire for and so we saw this huge opportunity there to actually join the dots between those two so yeah that's fundamentally what we're trying to do we're trying to get more young people into work, having meaningful careers um, at some of the big tech players um, and hopefully have a positive impact through doing that. Wow, that's a pretty exciting and ambitious mission. Um, great to hear. What, what, out of interest, what's your the geographic spread? Are you obviously you're UK based, but are you looking to kind of engage users across the world? Yeah, absolutely. Countries? Yeah, well, you so we're. We're UK based. Um, we we also have an office over in the Netherlands, um, and 
we have a relationship with another office over in Switzerland. Um, so our aim is to launch in English first, you know, predominantly through our network of colleges and young people we know that way within the UK, um, but then expand into English-speaking territories because obviously the content's English, you know, reasonably quickly, and then look at going global, looking multilingual over the next couple of years. So it's really get get the, the beta version of our product out there, sort of prove the model works, test it, refine it, expand the content and then yeah then look at going global i mean we we would love everybody to have access to it eventually um and in some respects it's it's even more important in many parts of the world where um access to uh, early stage careers is even harder than it is in the uk or europe um you know areas of africa areas of the middle east um there's a lot of opportunity there to potentially give people the skills to get roles in a global market you know if you're in tech and you have an internet connection um and some means of accessing that then you could potentially work in tech um so don't get me wrong there's challenges with giving people internet connection and getting people the hardware you know that's something else we'd like to look at as well but um if they have that then you know we can we can potentially get them roles in very 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 highly paid roles considering where they are as well um globally right that's very exciting um yeah fantastic to hear fantastic to hear Focusing on you, because you and I worked together um, a few years back on a, on a, on a couple, of, couple of projects. What's your path been? What's your sort of tra- tra- uh, career trajectory, Scott, up until now? And how did you get to, and how did you get into tech originally? I always love being asked that question because I quite often have, you know, I'll get asked by more junior people, you know, how, how, do you, how do you create a career in product? How do you create a career in UX? Um, and my, my honest answer is don't ask me because I've taken a very convoluted route to get to where I am, um, which is actually the more I speak to people, actually many people's journeys into this has been quite, uh, it, it taken many different routes. Um, so I originally started out um, working in, well, originally at college I was doing engineering and tech illustration so i I was looking at um how engines work and um illustrating and 3d modeling complex engine blocks and things like this um wow uh very different to what i do nowadays my my first actual proper job once i'd left college was um working for an agency that did a lot of technical documentation for the likes of um british nuclear fuels and um, BAE systems and things like this. So it was lots of it was lots, it worked for me because it was lots of really complex engineering stuff that you were illustrating and doing fun stuff with. Um, but it was there was a lot of 3D modeling involved, and that that got me by pure luck. I happened to have some work shown at a, a careers event down here in the Big Smoke in London, um, and somebody from Sky News saw my work, and I ended up through various conversations working for Sky News doing their their 3D. 3D animation on air, 3D animation for a few years. So, you know, my oh, role right. there was, you know, a big news event would happen and I would help illustrate it and help present it to the world in 3D. You know, great fun. I was in my early 20s working in TV. Um, right. It was, yeah, very, very intense. You never quite knew what you would be doing every day because you never quite knew what was going to happen in the news that day. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of my, my route into tech. There was always like a it was a relatively small team there. So I had my fingers in lots of different pies. So we'd be doing 3D modeling. We'd also be doing new interface design and interface development to actually run the 3D models. Um, and it was 
started to become more and more around information graphic design and infographics and that type of work which is when i made the jump over to the bbc and i worked on the bbc news's um the website doing a very similar thing but looking at you know inf- basically um data visualization and info storytelling so you know using graphics to tell stories um but at the same time, um, I was starting to learn more and more about UX, um, which wasn't even called UX back then. It was good old fashioned web design. Um, uh, but the the team again at the BBC were were quite were quite small considering the size of the BBC. But the actual web team was still quite small. Um, so I just got really interested in the whole UX side of things. Um, designed a few of the, the what we call micro sites back then. I think. I think Question Time was the first one I ever did, or Panorama. It was one of the, it was one of those. Really, one right. of those small, and it was using a lot of like template, you know, templatized um, um, frameworks and things. So it was it was relatively e- it was relatively easy for the time. And then that that kind of took me down the trajectory of UX and went down that route quite heavily. Um, moved over to BBC Sport and worked on various BBC Sport products over the years. Um, and after a good time, a good stint of time at the BBC, which was like the fantastic place to learn about user-centered design, you know, because it really was, you know, its mission is about putting, you know, its audience at the heart of everything it does. Um, so it was a fantastic place just to learn you know, the purest form of UX. Um, what it was missing, though, for me at the time was that more commercial angle. You know, the, obviously the, the commercial model for the BBC is very different to elsewhere in the real world. Um, so I was really looking at getting some of that experience. So I, again, through pure luck and, you know, a, a recruiter reaching out to me, um, went to work for Amazon for a while, um, where I kind of learned like the, the big tech view of what commercialization of UX looks like, um, which, again, very good experience looking at um, Amazon video, again, the UX side of Amazon video, uh, mainly the TV devices, devices like PlayStation, Roku and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, that, that was a firmly cemented me then to kind of like the UX slash product design area. And then I after that, I jumped between a few different startups. I worked at agency a few times. Um, I worked at a startup called The Zone, which was a video streaming service, um, very similar to Amazon Prime in some respects, but it was all focused on sport, so I helped launch that. Um, and then over the years, my my kind of pure UX hat started to merge more and more with the product management hat. I realized that as I was running the UX side of things, I was often doing the product management side as well. Because it, it was just a natural fit, you know. If you're if you care about the user and what the end output is for them, then really you have to have a holistic view of what that entire how that entire system works, you know. So it crosses over with service design, crosses over with product management. Um, so nowadays, I tend to describe myself as a product manager more than necessarily a pure UX person, even though UX is still a big part of what I do. Um, but my role now at Hundo is it's product, it's tech. The tech team sit under me as well, so I I can give tech direction as well. So it's kind of bringing on the all the aspects of building this product, um, but from a, a user focused angle, which is yeah, which is it's been an interesting journey over the years. I'm not doing what I expected I'd be doing 15 years ago. Wow, that's it's amazing that the the, uh, the the journeys that, as you say, that different people come into this through and how they how they get to where they've got to. But it sounds like you've got a lot of varied experience, which has obviously allowed you to draw on in terms of kind of what you're doing now, which is which is great. Just picking up on some of that. So here's a question: How can UX folk, whether they be designers, user researchers, uh, or the like, ha- ensure they have an impact on the product teams they're working with? So whether it be the, the the tech teams, whether it be the uh, 
uh, other teams involved? You know, how can they ensure impact in, in, in their work and making sure their work kind of feeds through? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I've seen it done. I've seen sort of both sides of the story where there's UX teams which have massive amounts of impact, you know, are really, really helping shape what the product is. Um, I've also seen the flip side where the UX teams are glorified UI designers. Um, and you, you see a tension between two. And I think a lot of it depends on actually what the organization you work for, how it's already structured. You know, if you're in a startup and it's relatively small and there's only a few of you, you can have an impact really quickly. You know, because you, you can set out what UX is from day one. You know, th this is how it, this understanding of our user group, this is this is how we then use it to influence the roadmap, to influence the features we build, to impact the testing. I think if you're a bigger organization, first off, try and understand how the organization already thinks about these processes. You know, where, where does UX sit? You know, is it, is it part of a cross-functional team which has impact and a seat at the table across the board? You know, are you part of the sprint plans? Are you in the strategic conversations already? In which case, fantastic, because the impact is about leveraging that. Um, or are you being treated like a department over here as part of a process where user stories get fed in, you spit out some UX designs and it gets built further on the line. Because I think if you're in that stage, then I think it's about, um, you can go down one, two tracks. You can want to accept it and go, okay, then that's what we do. And we'll just get really good at doing that um, and make sure we do that as well as possible. Um, or it's about, so really it's a sales role to sell to the rest of the organization what the skill sets that the people in the team could actually bring above and beyond what they're already doing. Because um, any good UX designer has probably got experience across be it UX research, be it the product design aspect, they've got an understanding of what users actually need from the product. Um, and using that as more of a sales role to help educate the rest of the organization about where they could add more value. Um, and, you know, it's hard work, don't get me wrong. You know, it's probably a lot of, depending on how big the organization is, there's a lot of presenting, there's a lot of, um, structuring good arguments as to why it makes sense to use the information they have in a way that you know might not have been used before um I've, from experience i find it being close to the user and this is where ux research really comes in strong is being the, often the closest to the users um with the exception of customer service teams or or business development teams but you're often one of the people that are actually finding out what people's issues are um, being able to present that and tell that as a story across the organization i think is really really powerful and just influencing through that kind of mechanism so even if you haven't officially been asked to do it, look, we've spoken to these people. These are the people that use our product. This is what we've learned from it. These are the issues we've found. These are solutions we could have in place. Telling that in a good story that can start to bring people on board. Um, I think that is very, very valuable. Um, getting people to listen to that story can be a challenge. You know, getting them to listen to it and take notice of it. Um, and then I think a lot of it's about repetition and getting it very similar to any any sales role, getting it in front of the right people in the organization. You know, if you're, if there's a big tech team and they're not listening, you know, are you presenting to the right people? You know, is there a reasonably senior member that would listen? You know, are, are there other people that are interested in that angle? Um, are there people elsewhere in the business? Maybe it's the CEO, maybe it's the COO, you know, maybe it's someone reasonably senior. Are you getting in front of the right people? Because if you do, then that message starts to come down. And I think that would be my key message to any team that is actually trying to have more impact create good stories, create them off really solid data that you've learned from the users, and then make sure you're telling those stories to the right people. Um, and don't get frustrated when you tell stories to people and they don't listen. That will happen. It will happen a lot. That's okay. Keep telling that story, refining it, take feedback. Um, 
you know, tra treat the rest of the organization like you would do a user testing session. See what they see, how they react to something, take that information on board to re reframe the story and then push it out. Um, ultimately, you know, if you were to do that for years and find you were banging your head against a brick wall, find an organization that does it better <laughs> and go and work there. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. I really like that, and, and yeah. yeah, everything you've said resonates so much. And I think it's the power yeah. of narrative, and it's come through again and again in this series with all the guests we've talked to. Is, I mean, yeah. how, how Scott, you talked about presentation, you've talked about narrative. Kind of, what's the best way to present some of these insights? Would you say, like, if you're if you're sharing user in, user research insights, let's say with tech teams or with senior stakeholders within the business, yeah. artifacts, kind of. Well, how the presentation, the format, of the presentation, kind of what, how, what's the best way to do it? It it really depends on the target audience, and this is where this is where actually being a UX is is good. And and often I see people forget that when they're doing an internal presentation is you've learned a lot, so you'll put it into a slide deck and then you'll go and present that like a slide deck, um, which may or may not work depending on your organisation, depending on who the, who you're speaking to. Um, and I think it's really that awareness of who you're speaking to and what they need from it is really really vital. Um, yeah, as a general rule, showing some actual users being confused by your product or being excited by your product is very powerful and tends to work reason, you know, reasonably well across the board. Um, but you may get some teams that are much more data driven. You know, they're really interested in big data. They're more interested in the, the uh, what's being inferred by that. You'll get some that are much more emotionally driven. You know, actually, I've seen my I've seen our users doing this and that. Even though it's only one or two of them, I'm actually quite feel quite passionate about that. I think it's about understanding those target users. You know, and understanding the the people you're speaking to is critical. Um, you know, it might be that you're presenting to a CEO and that CEO only has ten minutes. And you've got to make a you've got to make a point in ten minutes. So maybe it's you know it's a it's a very quick it's a one slider. We've learned this about our we've learned this. We need to do this. Here's some evidence. Here's some data. Here's here's a couple of videos that show people getting confused. And that's that's what you've got. You know you you've got that time to land it. Um, it may be that you're speaking to um, the you know data analytics team inside your organization they're actually just want to go in with the nitty-gritty detail and maybe it's more of a collaboration it's about actually here's what we've learned but we want your help to do something better um so i know that isn't a direct answer there, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach i don't think you can ever assume that this, this shiny deck you've made is going to resonate with everybody um it's very hard if you're an external organization presenting back to a team as well. That's what I have found. If you work with an external team, it's very hard because it's hard to understand who you need. Um, but I've certainly, certainly some of the more recent companies I've worked with, you know, the same information has been presented in two or three different ways, depending on who you're speaking to. And that, that does, that does help. So think about it like, think about it like it was a marketing campaign. You know, how would you market this information to different groups of people and then think of it that way? Um, it sounds hard and complicated, but really it's just, do you know who you're speaking to? If not, can you find out who they are? Can you find out what type of format tends to work for them? Um, and if you can't find out that information, try your best, pull together the, you know, pull together the best assets and then learn from it afterwards. It, I, yeah, I mean, it's almost yeah. a user needs based approach, isn't it? What are the needs totally. of the audience you're talking yeah. to, and then tailor it accordingly. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's very easy to forget that. And a lot, of, basically, a lot of bigger big teams forget that people inside the organisation are users as well. You know, so as a UX team, you'll have personas potentially for you know the the audience that you're speaking to externally. But do you have internal personas? Now, they might not be ones you stick on the wall, but it's probably worthwhile understanding who they are as well so that you, you have a mental model of, you know, the behaviors and what they expect so that you can best structure the information that you're collecting and pushing it out. Um, again, if you're in a small team and you're in a small startup, there's less than 20 of you, like I currently am, it's easy. 
I send a message on Slack, you know, and it's so so the, so the level the level of uh, communication you need is very very different. What about the characteristics of a good UXer, and whether that be a designer or a, a, a you know a, a researcher? What are the personality traits and characteristics that make somebody good in UX? Would you say? I think it's um, being inherently curious about how things and people work is very very important just general curiosity um, and a, a belief that you're probably wrong about most things is also quite useful going into a conversation assuming that anything what you already understand is wrong so you're not so you're not surprised when you find out that you are wrong um, or you are very surprised if you find out you you are actually right I think that's incredibly important um, I think there's also a certain detachment needed from what you're doing day to day to what you're learning about and i think and when i say detachment i mean that in a you certainly see this more with more junior people the the i've done this work so i'm very proud of it is absolutely fine but that takes away from the assumption that you may be wrong and what you've actually done doesn't work so i think that there's a there's a balancing line there and to, to go in with that and i think any any good ux designer should have that um and then there's the the cliche of just empathy you know just trying to understand you know understand your end users um although i sometimes i challenge that because as much as you can have empathy for people um true empathy is this deep understanding of who you're speaking to and that's actually very hard to get and it's very hard to get across a wide range of different types of audiences um but it's i think it's it's just important to be able to put yourself in that mindset of you know how how does this work for those people? And if you can do those things, then you're already into a good space. You know, you can you can challenge yourself. You can start to get an understanding of them. And then once you have an understanding of them, keep challenging yourself and saying you're probably wrong because they may change. Mm-hmm. So what advice or tips would you give to somebody who wanted to get into this world? What, what would you say to them? I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, if you want to get into the UX world, I think, there's a lot of there's a lot of obviously courses out there which teach you like the ideal UX process and the, these are the steps you need to do in order to actually actually build something, um, and that is great. Almost never works like that process that you've been taught in the real world because uh, the real world is very messy and it has stakeholders that don't necessarily agree. It has users that don't do what you expect them to do. Um, it has it has business needs that. Um, may contradict what you think is the best advice. Um, so I think one is get a good understanding of the theory. Absolutely. You know, I'm not discrediting the courses that people go on, but definitely get a good understanding of the theory. But my one key piece of advice to anybody is it's really to practice, practice, practice. It's like you, you've got to go and try this. And the only way you can do this is to, if you're not actually in a role already, is to create your own little side projects and then test them or you know use them with real people or start to learn what that actually looks like. Um, and I know that's hard. You know, if you've, if you're trying to put food on the table and you've got a kid and, you know, there's, it's very hard to do that. And I kind of appreciate that. Um, but I think wherever possible, it's about just trying to get, you know, those little nuggets of experience where you can do um, just to be able to sort of stress test some of this stuff in the real world. Um, but on the flip side of that is don't go and work for people for free. So 
But I often then get asked the question, oh, well, should I go and volunteer for a company and do it? It's like, no, because it has value. You know, this does have value. You know, f- fine if it's a friend and you're doing something to help out, but, you know, don't don't go and offer your time for free just to get the experience. Um, as valuable as that is, you're basically being ripped off. So it's, it's about a fine line there. Um, but yeah, I think it's just find every opportunity you can just to practice, 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 you know. Um, and if you're, if you're doing UX research, you know, run some online tests with Amazon. You know, pick, pick a site that you've worked, you, you know well, and just just practice that way. You know, you use some of the free testing tools just to try it out, come up with some recommendations, have a go at coming up with some answers to it. It might not be something that you show in your portfolio, but it'll be something that surprises you and teaches you something new and helps you to understand how to apply this in the real world. Hmm. And and you talked about the sort of messy real world there. It doesn't get messier than the last couple of years in the pandemic. Um, how has that impacted thinking of you know you and your work how has that impacted you and the team and kind of what you've been able to do or has it impacted you um i'd say surprisingly it didn't impact us as much as i would have thought it would have done beforehand um we i mean we we've got great tools nowadays you know there are you know we can we're speaking to each other on a on a call now and we can hear each other quite well i'm sat in my house you know it's it works quite well so you know we got the we got the tools needed i think in terms of um speaking to users user testing that kind of thing i think our approach to it changed you know there was less you know there used to be more of a reliance on well, let's get people in a lab and there's a two-way mirror and we'll film them and we'll record what they're doing on the screen um Though that, the, though there is clearly a place for that, I think what we've actually found, or what I found personally, in my teams is we can get a, a huge amount just through doing a call like this and sharing somebody's screen and having a conversation. If not, in some respects, easier because we can speak to people globally, no problem at all. Uh, providing you know there's language barriers and things like that but apart from that you can speak to people pretty much globally uh, access to people has become easier you're no longer relying on people traveling into you know a, a set um set place and i would also argue the the act of getting people into a test environment changes their behavior because they're in a test environment as is the watching somebody do what they would normally do sat in their living room whilst you're recording their screen is probably a more natural environment um now, don't get me wrong, it came with challenges. So, you know, during the pandemic, I was working with one company that had a, a large fitness mirror and it was a six foot mirror that um, had smart technology in it. Trying to use a test on a six foot mirror required users to set up a laptop and point a webcam at it. And there, were, there was a, there was a right. few complicated issues when it came to actually getting them to set it up. Um, but it's still, what surprised it still works. You know, we still actually got lots of valuable information out of it. Um, and I say, arguably, it is made, our job slightly easier because we just have we just have bigger reach right now and we're, we're not mm-hmm. worrying about quite as many logistics unless mm-hmm. you're getting people to try and stand in front of a six-foot mirror yeah no it's yeah it's true isn't it and that thing about people being more relaxed in their own home i've totally totally experienced that yeah. myself yeah um interesting i'm interested as well that you uh refer to yourself as a self-styled chief metaverse officer and i wanted to kind of pick your brain again i'm sure you've had lots of questions about this but uh you know, the metaverse is obviously being talked about more and more. It, it's, you know, you're seeing it in the media. It's on people's lips now. Kind of how would you describe the metaverse in, uh, in terms of kind of what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, I think the metaverse again is really interesting. I think the metaverse, the metaverse lacks a single definition right now. It's quite, it's a very vague concept. Um, fundamentally, my description of it is um, 
it's part of a wider piece around Web3, around and Web3 being the evolution, the next stage of evolution of the internet. Um, and there's many different aspects to Web3. I think the, the, the metaverse aspect to it is online spaces where um, they, online spaces which have their own community and their own economics um, that are potentially interconnected with each other and aspects of them are portable between all the different all, all the different um, stages, uh, all the different sort of environments, uh, best way of describing it. So I kind of think about, I kind of always take things back to sort of the gaming world. You know, I've always been a bit of a gamer. Um, and I imagine that like if, if you're playing one game, you know, whatever it may be, um, and you have, it's online and you have a community and you have a space there and it has its own economy, um, the metaverse is really thinking about how you would then start to connect these multiple environments together. You know, so I have one avatar with one set of skill sets and I've, I've achieved these in one area. That is portable and I can start to use it everywhere, you know, and it, it becomes my identity. So I think that's really how the metaverse starts to work for me. It's about like that. What does that what does that next stage of the internet looks like when it is far more immersive? Um, you know, when we're using more in terms of 3D tech, we're using more in terms of VR, AR, that kind of thing to kind of immerse people in. Um, as I mentioned, it's more about the the Web3 aspect of it as well. So the other technologies, so it's all decentralized, so it, it, it's less reliant on um, really single points of failure. So you don't have the big metas, Facebooks of the world who own all your data. Data becomes owned by you, you know, self-sovereign data that you can then port to and control however you want to across different types of services. Um, it's around using some blockchain technologies to be able to actually store some of this information in a way that again isn't centralized on individual an individual service. So when I say metaverse, I think about it in those terms. Um, the reason why we gave my well, the reason why I gave myself that job title here is fundamentally I'm the CPO, so I, you know I look after the product side of things. Um, but we're increasingly thinking about what the Web three looks like for us and our users, you know, and and trying to get the young people on our platform, teaching them about what Web3 will actually mean for them. And a big part of that is just understanding what this future state of metaverse actually will start to look like. Um, it will almost certainly not be called the metaverse whenever we get there, just like the internet is not called hyperspace. You know, it will it will become more, it will become more structured and it will have more of a, a, a tangible output to it. Funny. So it's really... Hyperspace is a real blast from the past, isn't it? I haven't heard that term for a long time. <laughs> no, I, it's, I came up in conversation with someone the other day, and I was like, "You do realize the metaverse won't be called the metaverse?" And they're like, "Well, why?" It's like, "Well, do you remember the information superhighway or the hyperspace?" It's like, <laughs> no one calls it that nowadays, and that's kind of showing my age—the fact that I even remember that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. What about the challenges, though, Scott? You've talked about some of the kind of opportunities and the possible ways it could develop. I'm interested to know yeah. the challenge, challenges both for product teams building uh, products and services within the metaverse and also for users of the metaverse. What, what are the key challenges you foresee? For both? Yeah, I think I'll start with the users. I think for users, there's, a, there's one, there's a big barrier of entry. Um, for one, there's a lot of terminology that doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. So there's a whole new set of terminology that people have to learn just to be able to navigate this space. Um, and that, as we know from a UX perspective, the second you start introducing new technical terms, it will start confusing people. Um, and I would also argue sometimes it's unnecessary new terminology. You know, it's, it's, it's really, you're just taking existing paradigms and you're, you're treating them slightly differently. So I think one, there's that. Um, two, from a user perspective, Still, we're still talking in terms of big buzzwords rather than in terms of actual outputs, you know, in terms of what you actually get from it. Um, like, you know, good question about the metaverse. What is the metaverse? Well, if you're talking about it in this very high level, it's about these interconnected spaces and you've got self-sovereign identity that you can move between them. Most sensible people will go, I don't care. What do I get from it? You know, why, why is it important to me? Um, and I think it's, 
it's down to you know the individual product teams in the area to actually come up with solid user user propositions and solid um, problems that they're solving in this space and be able to communicate that out to people. Um, you know, so in our in our uh, in Hundo space, it's about actually we're trying to educate people and we're trying to give people the skills they need to be able to work within this space. So it's quite an easy proposition to communicate. Um, but the fact that we have to teach people in you know the very first courses that we send people on effectively are teaching them what all this means tells us that there's this massive barrier of entry to get in there. Um, the UX around a lot of the technology can also be quite again convoluted sometimes. You know. Um, the particularly when you start going into the decentralized spaces so if you are interacting with any of the many blockchains or you are interacting with uh, it's often like you have a wallet which connects you to decentraland for instance you know decentraland is a metaverse space it's a 3d space you can walk around um, you can just log in as a guest but if you want an account you have a wallet and a wallet is doesn't make much sense in that context but what it actually is is a way of logging into that site but it's a separate service so to do that you have to go through the steps of logging into that and I kind of liken that to imagine if you tried to sign into Amazon and Amazon said but before you come onto Amazon you've got to sign up for this other service that's called something really strange that doesn't make any sense you've got to sign up to that first by the way that's super secure don't lose your information about that otherwise people can hack you um, and then you've got to use that to get on our platform and it's straight away people would get frustrated with it you know they'd go and buy the book elsewhere you know and I think so there's, there's lots of user barriers to it um, and I think those user barriers are also then the product barriers so as, as product teams in this space we should really be thinking about what that good experience looks like you know how do you take away those steps you know how do you keep the essence of what web3 is about but without actually making it so complicated that you you know people don't actually want to use it um, and the problem you think you're trying to solve by having a decentralized database great but if an end user all you really care about is can i actually get onto this service is my data set you know secure um you know make it really simple that way um and I think, yeah, another point is just going back, going back to our user focus, user focus approaches. Really think about what we're trying to solve. You know, why, where we're using technology to solve it. And I think that's that's always key, and it's key of any any good product is thinking about that. Often forgotten about in the web three space, if I'm honest. There's a lot of you know, very deep DeFi finance products which are very good at for the the. Uh, the, the crypto literature out there are able to use them, but real people would be like, well, I, I don't see an end benefit to this and it seems too complicated. So I think it's, it's going back to those core principles of, you know, how am I making people's lives easier? How am yeah. I making people's lives better, more secure? Um, and remembering that quite often people rightfully don't care about things that don't impact, you know, they just want something to be easy. You know, I want my bank account to be easy to access. I want it to be secure, clearly. But I also want it to be very easy. I just want it to be open when I open it, you know. And it's about it's about finding those, finding the the right middle ground between those those kind of tensions. So, what about the skill sets needed then by UX teams to work in this new space? To what extent do you think that current skills techniques are transferable? And to what extent will UX folks have to kind of learn new ways of doing things? I think on the whole, the UX skill sets predominantly stay the same. Um, that's it. When you go back to the core of it, it's about understand. Again, it comes back to understanding your end user, speaking to the people actually on your platform, um, and understanding you know what their motivations are, what they what, what problems they're trying to solve, and then whether they, this product actually solves them or not. So I think fundamentally it comes back to the same. I think we have to assume a level of naivety in terms of our audience, um, which you won't necessarily get in web two spaces so if you're in web two and you people are used to certain paradigms of interacting 
So I, I sign up to a service, I go through these steps and I get access to that service. Um, as I mentioned before, on a web threat, it may be different to sign up to a service. Maybe you have an, you have an account here, but you also have to connect this, um, this Chrome extension. You have to sign up to that Chrome extension. So there's certain paradigms that have to be different. So I think as a UXer in that space, it's being aware of that and aware that your audience won't necessarily understand that. So designing for that. But then also understanding that because it becomes more complex, and it's not just about your service anymore, which is one of the key things about decentralized products is it's not just about your product owns everything. It's your product is in a network of other products which may impact it. That potentially increases the complexity of it. It's just being aware of that. You know, as a, as a really good example, when we're building out our Hundo Campus platform right now, the EdTech platform, um, we'll let people sign up as you typically will do, email, password, that kind of thing. Um, but we also let people connect to wallets so that they can sign in with a wallet as well. We deliberately let people sign in with an email and password because we know that's a paradigm people already get. And then we teach them about what the wallet paradigm is about. But as soon as we add that wallet paradigm in, we're starting to use a third-party service, of which case the, starts, the complexity starts to increase because they can change their service at any point you know, what they do with it and how, how it interacts with it. Um, they, there's, there's something that becomes complexities there. And that's assuming you support one wallet and there's, there's thousands of things. So if you, start, if you start supporting multiple, then suddenly you've got multiple ways of basically problems starting to come out in your flow. And as, we, as you know, with any complex system, the second you add another piece of complexity to it, that exponential curve of complexity goes up. So I think it's, it's being aware of those. Uh, any good UX can do it. You know, it's, it's not... I don't think it's complicated. It's just from a process perspective, it's just being aware that there's, you no longer have a hundred percent control anymore over that experience. There might be a lot that takes place outside of your control, which makes us UX people kind of nervous. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And, and this is, yeah, absolutely fascinating this. So are there kind of verticals then or uh, industries or products that you think are not suitable for the metaverse if i can put it like that if there are certain things which are probably going to be better off elsewhere or designed in other ways that's a very good question um the answer is i don't know and the well the answer is probably yes but we don't know yet uh, one of the one of the key things that motivates me about what we're doing is we really want to enable people to be able to explore this space and try it just like the internet in the late 90s. It was like we didn't understand all the use cases for it and all the problems it could solve. You know, I didn't expect I'd be able to book a cab through an app on a mobile phone in 95. You know, I, I didn't realize that that use case would be enabled by the internet where I was reading the news and ordering books. You know, I, I hadn't connected the dots between those, those kind of use cases yet. And I think that we're heading into the same space where there's an infinite number of use cases, some of which will be terrible. But until we get the right people trying them, it's hard for us to know. And most of the people in this space right now are deep in tech. So they're solving deep tech problems. What I really want people to do is be able to use that technology to solve non-tech problems. Mm -hmm. um, you know, What does it mean for a taxi company now if you're in the Web3 space? I don't know, but it'd be interesting to interesting to enable them to start to explore that. Um, you know, if you are a retail store, you know, what does it mean? Is it a is it suddenly you have a virtual environment of Tesco's that you can go and shop in, um, or is it or is it something different? So I think yeah, the answer is yes. There'll be tons of stuff that it just doesn't work for. But until we've got people who are experts in all those domains to be able to have the skill sets to at least be able to try, we really don't know. Um, which actually makes it exciting uh, you know it makes it quite exciting to say well what will happen what will it look like in 10 years time when you know somebody who works in a very different industry to what we expect suddenly sees a use case for it that nobody imagined 
Um, and I, I find that quite exciting. You know, I think it, it will be very interesting. Uh, no doubt there will be a lot of very bad products on the way of people that get it totally wrong. Interesting. It's a bit like the Wild West. You've got this sort of very fertile land of, of yeah. you know, people are trying it out, as you say. And yeah, much like the early days of the web itself. A um, couple of general questions. What do you love about what you do? You've shared a lot of the kind of stuff you're up to. What, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I, I, I love it when I love the aspect of just solving some of these sort of more complex issues. I, I, I like understanding how things work. I always have them. I've always liked understanding how things work um, and how they interact with people and how people and how people work and interact with them. And I, I've always been fascinated by that. So for me personally, it's about understanding that. You know, it's about understanding how does this system work? You know, how can we make this system better? And how can we how can we either improve or change people's behaviors in the behavioral systems outside and connect those two things together? So I find that very, just very interesting. I can go quite deep. I can get quite obsessed sometimes when I see those problems, you know, more so than I should be. And just get really into it, trying to understand how all the different parts of it work. Um, and I've always found I can I can visualize quite complex systems quite easily. And I think that mm. that helps in that space. Um but I think, you know, right now where I'm in my career, um, I used to like just doing that and, and feeling like I was doing it in a good place. Now I'm at a point where I want to be able to do that, but with a, with a you know, good impact at the end of it. You know, so I've I spent a lot of time making very rich people richer. So now it's about actually, can I, can I use those same skill sets to make, um, to help people out um, that aren't necessarily already rich people? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and the flip side of that question, what, frustrates you scott or challenges you particularly about what you're doing at the moment frustrations are i mean frustrations come and go um i'm quite lucky at the moment that i'm in a you know really good organization with some good people um that hasn't always been the case. I, I was talking before about a lot of the, uh, the sort of the bigger organisations where you're trying to sort of wrestle with that organisational complexity um, and trying to sell the benefit of good product, product design UX. Um, and I do find that frustrating. Um, you know, I, I did. I must admit, as, as good as I typically was at it, I also hated it. You know, when you have to be that politician, um, I I can be quite impatient when it comes to that in terms of why. Why do you not just get this? As much as I understand why you don't get this, as much as I understand that you've got other motivations that are, that are pushing you in a different direction, um, that can be frustrating. Um, particularly, I think, the more senior you get in organizations and the more weight you think you have, um, the, the harder in some respects it becomes because you realize that you know, sometimes it's just people's mental models won't change. Um, and that, that can be frustrating. Uh, say I'm quite lucky at the moment. That's not the case where I am now. You know, we're a small startup. Um, if we can maintain that when we get bigger, that'll be the key. Brilliant, brilliant. Last thing then, before I let you go, uh, three-car challenge. So I've been playing this with all, all my guests. So basically yeah. I've got well, their handmade cards, as you can see on screen here. So there's basically a heart, a spade, and a diamond. And one is a tool, one is a technique, and one is a trend. So I'm going to get you to pick a card and just tell me, and this is obviously in terms of UX. So your favorite UX tool uh, a favorite technique you've got or you've used in the past and a trend that you see in, in the space you're working in at the moment. So pick a... I'll pick, pick a, a, a spade. Pick a spade. Okay. So the spade is technique. Favorite technique at the moment. Um, or or p- 
prior to that kind of a, a technique that you like as your go-to what well, yeah one of my one of my go-to techniques for almost any challenge that i'm trying to solve is thinking about um either basically using mapping techniques so either thinking about journey mapping even thinking about sort of behavior mapping but looking at how somebody interacts with stuff in real time in in step by step i i find it very very useful to help understand how something will actually impact people um and i often do that first i don't necessarily keep with it but i find it a very very useful exercise just just imagine you know this is the this is the human that is actually going to use the thing that i'm working on you know this is how they interact with it at set points you know and this is what else is going on in their lives you know so and I say, it, I use different mapping techniques. It could be an experience map. It could be a user journey map. But fundamentally trying to understand those different sort of touch points that people have, I find it massively invaluable um, just to help me organize some of those complex touch points. Because again, going back to a complex system, doesn't matter how complex it is. If they just pick it up out of the pocket and they interact with 30 seconds, you've got to really just understand those 30 seconds and what's going on around them. Um, and I find that to be a super, super useful tool. Um, it's also a very useful tool for tool, uh, tool for teams, just to help teams understand um, your thinking on the matter. Um, again, if you can get a wide group of stakeholders into a session like that, I think it can be very, very powerful, even if the purpose of it is to get those people aligned around the same problem, which is often the case. You know, Quite often, I don't use it to solve the problem. I use it to help everybody understand the same problem. Mm. Um, and I think it, I do find that tool very, very useful. Right. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Next two. Oh, we'll go for a diamond. Diamond is trend. So in terms of, let's say, user experience, what's a, a trend that you see at the moment? Uh, maybe you like it, maybe you dislike it. Um, yeah, really. I'm kind of stuck in this Web3 world. So I see a lot of the trends in kind of like the, the Web3 right. space where, um, again, the, the trend seems to be around in some respects, overcomplicating UX and not necessarily putting UX in the actual <laughs> seat of where it should be, which I, I don't particularly like, but I think people are starting to address. Um, in terms of overall trends for UX, we're starting, it's starting to become a lot, many, many sites are starting to effectively be the same um, in terms of the flows they take, which makes an awful lot of sense because you, you get people to, uh, it's going to be easier to build a product with concepts that people already understand uh, i think that is starting to make it more difficult to actually differentiate between different products mm -hmm. and it's becoming more difficult to actually create unique experiences in that space um, and there is then a bit of a fear of deviating from those patterns because obviously those patterns work so uh, it's always a the pure ux part of me says having patterns that are consistent between lots of different products is obviously really really good um the human part of me goes but that makes life really boring so <laughs> There is a bit of a tension there. That's really interesting. And it's a bit sort of mare, isn't it? Because you look at something and you think, well, that, you know, whether it be, you know, any kind of online journey, it looks like it's competitors. How do you then differentiate that? Yeah. Um, and quite often the process doesn't help. So, you know, where do you start? Oh, we'll do a competitor map and we'll, 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 we'll go for the sign up flow of all our competitors and work out how we, how we, uh, how we sit along those. It's like, great. So you've basically built the same as they have, but made it better, which is obviously good. It's not a bad thing. And it will help you. And I can, it, it's done for all the right reasons, but it does mean you've designed the same thing. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, go on then. Last one is tool. So that's heart. Uh, Tell tool. me about your favorite UX tool. Miro. I use it for everything. 
absolutely everything. Um, I I I storyboard presentations on it. I do user flows on it. I do workshops on it. I write notes on it, which is clearly not what it's meant for. Um, I <laughs> but it is my it is my go to tool for almost everything. Um, with Figma as well. Figma is a great tool as well, but that's when we get into the integrity of design. But for UX, I just find Miro super, super useful. Um, it's clearly nowhere near as competent as a lot of the proper UX wireframing tools and a lot of the UX flow tools, uh, but it's just really easy to get lots of people on board. Um, you know, I can fairly safely go to any group of people and get the, you know invite them to Miro and run a session with them with almost no sort of drawbacks. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the sort of onboarding process of Miro is almost zero and the kind of barrier to entry is very low. Yeah, it's Uh, it's an easy tool to use. Um, Yeah, and it's easy to use and lots of people can use it. Um, As I say, you know, if you're wireframing, it's not necessarily the best tool by any means. It's far from the best tool, but it's quick and easy and people can use it. Uh, And and quick and easy in getting people to use it and understand the same problem space to me is what all those tools are really about, you know, when... When you get deep into wireframing and flows and uh, actual UI design, then clearly there's better tools out there. But yeah, Miro's good for that. that the, the initial stage where I spend most of my time. Absolutely. And what's interesting is throughout the series, almost every single person has said Miro. It's it's sort of becoming the the, the gold standard go-to tool of choice for, for the UX community. It um, is, it is. And I only use it at the beginning of lockdown. If it wasn't for lockdown, I don't think I'd have used it. Because before that, my favorite tool was a big whiteboard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, I remember some of the sessions that you and I did, uh, or what you were running back in those days, um, actually just, yeah, whiteboard, lots of post-its, kind of everyone around it. Yeah, It almost feels like ancient history now, doesn't it, doing that? Goodness. It does. It does. <laughs> I used to love taking over a room and having whiteboards and printouts and everything. And I'd be like, fantastic, I've decorated this room. I've done my job. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So Miro has effectively taken over that, so I don't have walls covered in post-it notes anymore. <laughs> So, which is a double-edged sword, I suppose. So I see you've got a whiteboard with post-it notes on behind you. So I I'm... have, I have. I do quite like it just to hop over to my home office and, and uh, yeah. yeah, be a bit kinetic. Um, that's been absolutely fascinating, Scott. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Do you have any other kind of burning comments or thoughts you'd like to share before I, before I let you go? Um, I, I guess I, I should say before I go, if you are interested in anything I said about Hundo, go to hundo.careers and, and check out what we're doing. Um We've got some reasonably big announcements coming out soon that I won't spoil now, but yeah, uh, do, do check out what we do. Uh, and you can follow us on all the usual social platforms. Absolutely. And I'll put a, put it in the show notes as well so people have got the link. Awesome. Um, but once again, thank you so much. Uh, that's been brilliant. Really enjoy talking to you as always. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share it more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to another experienced UX professional and asking them to share their wisdom, tips and knowledge with me. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.